Our New Testament reading is from Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will be, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question, and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, Son, go work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. The word of the Lord. Well, Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series through the Gospel of, of Matthew. And before we turn to this text, let us turn together to the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've done on our behalf and your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the proclamation of the Gospel that we find in your Scripture and here in this text as well. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your Lord, what our Lord, Jesus Christ, has done for us on our behalf. Please, Lord, please answer this prayer as we look at these pages. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this passage, it it presents us with three important images that Christ uses to explain the judgment that he pronounces 
and also the judgment that he takes upon himself. This passage, that is, is about the judgment of Jesus, the judgment of Jesus. And so as we look at this, the judgment that Jesus pronounces and the judgment that Jesus receives, let's look at each of these images in turn. We have the judgment of the fig tree. We have the judgment of the temple. And lastly, we have the grief of the brother. So let's start with the judgment of the fig tree. And so we have to ask, what in the world is happening with this event, with the, with the fig tree? Well, it's important to note that, that in the Bible, in biblical imagery, this, the tree, is an image for humanity. A key passage in Scripture that presents us with the flourishing human, with the flourishing human life, is Psalm 1, and it does so with the image of the tree in full fruition. As we just read, Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The human life that we are called to is pictured by the tree that flourishes, the tree that bears fruit. And so in the imagination of the Old Testament, the flourishing tree and the flourishing human, these are paired concepts. So then, in light of all that, what does this have to do with our present passage in Matthew? Jesus comes to a tree that is not in fruition, that is not bearing fruit. It's not doing what it's supposed to do. It's not doing what it's meant to do. And so Jesus places a judgment upon it. And what is this judgment? It's that the tree is to bear no fruit. Jesus declares, may no fruit ever come from you again. And then we are told that the tree, right then and there, withered at once. What's going on? Well, we have a kind of, of object lesson, a, a striking image of the human life. Jesus is warning us. He's warning us through the miraculous enactment of judgment. It would be like saying that, that time passes through our hands like sand and then actually having sand pass through your fingers. It would be like citing the proverb, man is a wolf, and then, and then bringing out a wolf to growl, to bark at, to snarl and bare its teeth at the crowd. Jesus is miraculously enacting the biblical image, the biblical metaphor of Psalm 1. He's communicating with touch and smell and sight in a very powerful way. It's one thing to hear and to read about the wicked in Psalm 1, that in contrast to the flourishing tree, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is what Psalm 1 tells us about the wicked. They will perish. They are not the tree in the state of fruition, but they are the tree in the state of withering. 
And think about how this would hit you if you saw a tree wither instantly right before you. This is like a time-lapse video of a dying tree in real life and in real time. And perhaps, perhaps we would get the same picture if we watched a time-lapse video of our own lives. Would our soul look like this quickly withering tree? This is what Jesus is warning us about. Again, this is a picture of judgment and a very, very powerful picture it is. To begin with, take note of what the judgment is. You shall not bear fruit. You shall not become what you were meant to become. You shall not flourish. Rather, you shall wither and shrink and decay and perish. You shall not bear fruit. Among other things, this pairing of the tree and the human person, it points us to the naturalness of the human. There's a proper way of being a fig tree, one that bears fruit, right? Figs, in this case. And the reason we find out that there's a proper way to be a fig tree is because of a lack of, of fruits. And eventually, the tree will die and we'll see it wither, just like we see with this tree. But is the same true for the human? Is there a proper way to be a human? And this pairing of the human and the tree, the passage insists that yes, there is. We, like trees, are natural creatures. We are directed toward a particular kind of flourishing according to the particular nature that God has given us. For instance, are you getting enough sleep? If you're not, then you will wither in some way, and some way you will not bear the fruit that you are meant to bear. However, unlike the tree, we are not only physical, but also spiritual creatures. And that means that an essential part of our sun and soil and water is personal relationships. And it's no secret that right now we live in an epidemic of loneliness. 15% of men report having no close friends, none at all. A recent Harvard study found that 36% of Americans feel, quote, serious loneliness. And this study identifies two groups who rate higher than this already high average. Specifically, 61% of young adults and 51% of mothers with young children identify as suffering from serious loneliness. What does this mean? It means we are withering and, and wilting and not bearing the fruit that we should. And so in addition to the 36% of Americans who report feeling serious loneliness, think about these specific groups at risk. Men generally, young adults, and mothers with young children. If you are a man in this congregation, are you forming deep friendships with other men? Are you coming alongside of young men? If you are a woman, woman in this congregation, are you reaching out to women? Are you developing connections with mothers with young children, mothers who might get very little interaction with adults throughout the course of their day? If you are an adult in this church, do you know the children of this church? Do you know their names? Would they ever ask you for advice? 
Without these personal relationships, all of us will wither and perish. Again, a key part of the law in which Psalm 1 tells us we are to delight in, it tells us that we must love our neighbor as ourselves. This is necessary both for our flourishing and the flourishing of our neighbor. We ourselves grow fruit by tending and tilling the soil of our neighbor. But of course, there is another essential aspect of the law, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this points us to another aspect of Jesus' judgment upon the tree. We read that Jesus comes to the tree because he is hungry. But in Mark's gospel, we find another important detail about this interaction. Mark tells us, when Jesus comes to the tree, or sorry, when Jesus came to the tree, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So we ask, why would Jesus place this judgment upon the tree? It's not even the season for figs. This is just the natural way of things. This is how sun and soil and water and seasons and weather patterns and a million other things in nature work together to produce figs only at certain times. Again, even Psalm 1 tells us about this flourishing human. He is like a tree that yields its fruit in its season. So then, what is going on here? I believe Jesus is showing us the very limits of the comparison between the tree and the human. And then he's actually going down, going further in, in breaking this analogy. Yes, the tree is only meant to bear fruit in its season. This is the natural way of things. But unlike the flourishing of the tree, the human creature, it finds its specific form of flourishing and happiness in something beyond creation, something beyond nature. To act out this picture of judgment, Jesus is expecting the tree to go beyond its nature, to go beyond the natural, to bear fruit out of season, to do by what its own natural resources it cannot do. He's expecting the tree to break beyond the bounds of the merely natural. However, this is not really what Jesus expects of the tree. This is what Jesus expects of us. If we are limited only to creation, to the natural world, to what we can taste and smell and see and touch and hear, then we will not bear the fruit that Christ commands of us. No, the only way that we will bear the fruit that Christ commands, as us, commands of us is by way of the supernatural, by way of God. Again, we're called to love God with our whole being and our neighbor as ourselves, and these are the fruits that only God himself can bear within us. And without God, we will wither and perish. And this is actually one key aspect of the Christian doctrine of hell. To wither forever, to perish forever, Without the one thing that can make us bear fruit, the only thing, the one thing that will turn us into what we are meant to be, that is God. Hell is to be without that thing, God, forever. 
For instance, John Arrowsmith, he's one of the theologians responsible for writing the Westminster Standards, our, our confessional theological document. He says, no man is created by God with a nature and quality fitting him for damnation. Damnation is not the end of any man's creation. That is to say, no human person finds their purpose in hell, just as no tree finds its purpose in withering. Hell means that the human can eternally become what it was never meant to become. Hell means humans can eternally fail to be the flourishing creatures that God made them to be. Yes, this is God's judgment, but it's also the natural effect of that most unnatural action of rejecting God. Without water, our plants will wither. And without the living water of God, so will we. This is the supernatural naturalness of the human. And this brings us to point two, the judgment of the temple. And so we have to ask another question. How does all of this that we've just said, how does it relate to the explanation that Christ gives concerning what he did to the fig tree? Christ tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Somehow Jesus' words here cast a light on what happened to the tree, and we will see just how they do this in a minute, but first, let me put in a disclaimer here about what Jesus' explanation does not mean. It does not mean that if we just have enough faith, then our prayers will suddenly be granted and become efficacious. It does not mean that if we just believe more strongly or more powerfully, then we will become miracle workers. Please hear me. This is a dangerous interpretation, and it can ruin lives. My wife and I knew a Christian woman who found out that she had cancer, and she did so when the illness was still very treatable. But her church group convinced her that if she just had enough faith that God would heal her, then she would be healed. And she believed this, and she went on to reject any medical treatment as a lack of faith. And she died. She died when she should not have died. She died unnecessarily, and she died with an unnecessary guilt about her faith in God. This is absolutely tragic, and this absolutely is not what Jesus is saying. Remember that the act of cursing the fig tree is an act of judgment. The fig tree has not borne the fruit that it is meant to bear. It's not flourishing like it was meant to flourish. And again, Christ is expecting the tree to do something beyond its nature. He's expecting it to bear fruit out of season. And what this means is that Jesus expects us to look beyond the natural into God. And we can only bear the fruit that Christ commands if we are in deep fellowship and communion with God. And this, I suggest, puts Jesus' explanation into perspective. What does Jesus say will be moved by faith? He tells us that this mountain will be. 
Theologian Peter Lightheart is, is helpful here. He writes of this passage, the key is to recognize that Jesus does not speak of mountains in general, but of this mountain. He tells his disciples that they can move this mountain, the Temple Mount. And this connection is essential, and we can push it even further. Remember that Jesus earlier entered the temple and he drove out the money changers. And right after offering this explanation, Jesus will again enter the temple and begin disputing with the chief priests and the elders. This whole interaction is sandwiched between events in the temple, and this interaction also concerns the temple. The tree is called to go beyond its, its, its uh, nature, the natural, and to bear fruit out of season. It's called to reach beyond the natural and unto God. And again, this is an image of what Christ expects of us. But think about the temple. Think about this mountain. Think about the temple mount that Jesus is right here in front of. It's naturally directed to the supernatural. It's naturally directed to God. The temple is the place where God and humanity meet, where the natural and the supernatural meet. It's the place where humanity fellowships with the one who alone can make humanity bear the fruit that it's meant to bear. Yet as Christ tells us when he came and cleansed the temple, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The temple itself has failed to reach above the natural world of what we can taste and see and touch and smell. The temple is more concerned with money. It's more concerned with the exchange of earthly goods. It's more concerned with everything other than God instead of God himself. And so ask yourself, how is it that humanity is brought back into fellowship with God? It's through faith. It's, it's through trust and love in God's character and in God's promise. And this is the very promise that is regularly enacted at the temple. It's the promise that the sacrificial animals can and will bear the judgment that we deserve for failing to love God and neighbor. It's the promise that a substitute can suffer the punishment of that perfect justice that we deserve. This is the promise that the withering that we deserve has been taken by another, and in this case, by an animal. And so, the temple was to be the very thing that directed us past the natural and unto God, to the supernatural, to the divine, to the transcendent, to the very promise of God. The temple is to direct us to faith, faith in God's promise. But again, it's become a den of robbers. It's not bearing the fruit of faith that it's meant to produce, and so it, like the fig tree, will undergo judgment. Yes, the temple will be destroyed about four decades later in 70 AD, but there's a deeper judgment here. Again, Christ tells us, if you have faith and do not doubt, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. If you have faith, then in a sense, you can bypass the temple. The temple can be done away with. In fact, if you have faith, true faith, then you will have to move beyond this particular temple. You will have to, in a sense, cast this temple into the sea. How is that? Well, again, while the temple is not doing so now, its purpose is to direct us to the promise of God. 
to God's sacrifice on our behalf. Accordingly, the promise of this temple actually directs us to the fulfillment in another temple. And so it's not exactly right that we bypass the temple, but rather this temple finds its fulfillment in another. The temple is the finger that's pointing us to the thing itself. And we're thankful for the finger that is pointing, but the whole purpose of a, fo- a pointing finger, right, is, is to follow where it leads. And so let us follow the pointing of the finger of the temple all the way to Christ Jesus himself. As Christ tells us in John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. In Christ, God the Son became human in this humanity that Christ Jesus takes. This is the ultimate temple. In this temple, Christ's humanity will undergo judgment. In fact, it will go undergo the very judgment that faith requires. The temple that is Christ's humanity will be taken up and thrown into the sea. Two times already in Matthew, Christ has spoken about the sign of Jonah. He tells the Pharisees and the scribes, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah was thrown into the chaos of the sea for three days, Christ will be thrown into the heart. Of the earth. Christ will spend three days in the great sea of chaos, the greatest sea of chaos there is, the sea of death. Christ Jesus himself is the temple. He is the one who will be cast into the sea, and it is for faith, our faith, that Christ has done this. If you have faith in Christ, then Christ declares, I have been cast into the sea for you. I have taken the judgment that you deserve. I have taken the punishment for your rejection of God and neighbor, the punishment of your sin, so that you may be brought into fellowship with the holy God. But Christ doesn't stop here. He even pushes further. Christ casts light upon all of the sacrificed animals at the temple as well. They too are fingers that point to him. Right after this, we see Christ enter the temple and he begins disputing with the chief priests and elders. And they ask, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Yet Jesus asks them a question in return. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven? Or from man? And they don't want to answer from man because they know that will anger the crowd. But they also know that if they answer from heaven, they know that that means that Jesus does have the authority to do what they're doing. And so they don't answer. But this shows us that not only is Christ the ultimate temple, but as John the Baptist declared to the crowds at the beginning of Christ's ministry, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the ultimate sacrificial lamb that every sacrificed animal in the temple ever and always pointed to. 
So yes, he has authority over every aspect of the temple, both the building and the sacrifices. Christ, as John the Baptist tells us, is the Lamb of God. And this brings us to our third and final point, the grief of the brother. So then, where are we? Let's, let's take stock. The fig tree is a picture of how we wither when we reject the law of God that calls us to love God and neighbor. And we are all guilty of this. None of us in our hearts are bearing the fruit that we should. And simply consider where we are as a society. There was an article in the New York Times this week about an older man who, who needed a colonoscopy and skin surgery for two cancerous spots. However, this man, he, he can't undergo the procedures that he needs because he has no one to put down as the person who will escort him from the hospital building, take him back to his apartment, and, and make sure that he's well settled there. These are all things that the hospital will not let an Uber driver do. And the article writes of this man, he is divorced and lives alone like a growing number of older Americans. His daughter lives in Boston. The cousin who brought him home after cataract surgery a few years ago has moved away. He doesn't have friends to help. Medicare doesn't cover a medical escort. He struck out with home care agencies too. And this is not an, uh, an isolated case. One, one professional in the article is, is, is quoted as saying, this is rampant. And the fact that this situation is rampant is a condemnation on all of us. And take note, this is not someone on the margin. This is a retired lawyer living in New York City. What this is, is the absolute breakdown of community. And we, in a million ways, every day, we chip away at the community in our own lives. Both this man and those around him have rejected their relational natures, and all of us, too, have rejected our relational natures. We've all refused the neighbor. We've all refused the good but hard work of helping and serving and of asking for help and service. We have made ourselves and others alone, and we've done this and withered in a million different ways. We put a podcast on when we're driving with our kids, listening to some correspondent rather than our own children. We walk around with headphones on, letting everyone know that we're not interested in talking or conversation. We sit down to a family dinner and look more at the faces on our phone's Facebook app than the faces of our friends and family around the table. We look outside and we see the neighbor about to leave. We actually stay in our house a little bit and wait to exit only when we see the neighbor driving out of the driveway because we wouldn't want to risk an awkward conversation. We see other parents standing around at our child's baseball practice, but, but it's easier just to stay back and not strike up a conversation. And so we and all of the other parents there are, in the words of a sociologist, alone together. We know more about some character on Netflix than we do our own friends. We shy away from talking about our real struggles with friends because that would be uncomfortable. We only make friendships that can benefit us socially or professionally. And we can't remember the last time we really, really, really inconvenienced someone. We really, really asked for help in a big way. We are withering. We are rejecting the good and gracious law of God that calls us to love God with our whole being and our neighbor 
as herself. We are withering, and this is the natural consequence of our unnatural actions. And so what do we need? We need Christ. We need the one who lived the perfect life of love to God and neighbor and who endured withering on our behalf. There is a worse tree of judgment than the fig tree. This is the tree of the cross on which Christ withered and perished. There is a far more violent sea than the one that laps against the Mediterranean coast. And this is the sea of death into which Christ, the ultimate temple, was thrown. There is a greater sacrifice than the animals that are bought and sold in the temple. And this is the Lamb of God who paid our debt with every ounce of his loving and gracious and sacrificial blood. And this brings us to the very last part of the passage. Jesus tells a parable about two brothers. He tells of one brother who tells his father that he will go into the field, but this brother doesn't. And the other brother tells the father that he will not go into the field, but then he actually does. And the English translation here tells us that the brother changes his mind. But the Greek word here actually carries a much stronger meaning. In fact, the Apostle Paul uses the noun version of this word in 2 Corinthians 7.10 when he writes, Godly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Jesus in this parable and Paul in this letter speak of a godly grieving that brings us to repentance. And so when you think about this man in the New York Times article, do you grieve? When you think about the ways that you have isolated yourself from others and ultimately from God, do you grieve? Do you sense your responsibility for the things that are wrong in your family, in your friendships, in your church, in your city? I say this as much to myself as anyone else. Do you, like the son of the father, turn to the father with godly grief? At one point in his writing, St. Augustine tells us that he was called to a nearby city and he was done done so to prevent what he calls a civil war among the residents of the city. And he speaks to the crowd, and he teaches them scripture, and eventually the crowd is softened, eventually the hostilities are conquered, and reflecting on the crowd's reaction, St. Augustine says the following, I did not consider I had achieved anything when I heard them applauding me, but only when I saw them weeping. Their applause only showed me that they were being instructed and delighted, while their tears indicated that they were being swayed. It was their tears. It was the visible signs of their grief that showed Augustine that this crowd had been brought to repentance. And to the adults in this room, if you've never cried over your sin, then perhaps you don't really get it. If you've never shed tears over your sin, then perhaps you don't really know Christ. And that's because you cannot know Christ and what he's done for you if you have never wept over all that you have done to him. Like this brother, we must know the godly grief over sin that brings us to repentance. The sin over which we weep is why Christ was withered, why he was cast into the sea, why why he was slaughtered as the Lamb of God. 
And so in these tears, let us turn from our sin into our loving Father who receives us because of Christ, the obedient brother who followed the Father both in word and deed. This is the promise of the true temple and the true Lamb. Christ tells us, I have taken what you deserve, death on a cross, so that I may freely give you what I alone deserve, the love and delight of the Father. And this communion with the Father will make you flourish. And so with this faith, Jesus tells us, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. How are we supposed to understand this? Well, it means that no good thing will God withhold from you if you have faith in Christ. True, we may not receive it in this life, in this mere breath that quickly passes before the rest of eternity. But if it is a good thing, we will certainly have it one day when Christ returns. We will have God loving him and knowing him in perfect fullness. And we will do so in a restored creation without envy or jealousy or bitterness or corruption or illness or decay. There will be no good thing missing here. But does that mean we should pray now for God to work his will, his goodwill in our lives and the lives of others? Absolutely. And we must do so without ceasing. But we must remember that the deepest and fullest answers to our prayers must wait for the life to come. Here we can taste the beginnings, but there we will feast on them whole. And from that vantage point, we will see that no prayer ever was wasted. In this life, we can, feel, we can at times feel that our prayers are, are like magic beans that we just kind of throw out the window in desperation and fear and anger. But after the sleep of death, and once we wake in the morning of Christ's return, Finally, we will see the mighty beanstalks of our prayers that have been growing to amazing heights during the dark night of this present life. And so in the trials of life, as we feel ourselves withering like this fig tree, we will often ask, Christ, don't you care that I'm perishing? Christ, won't you heal me? We must hear Christ say to us, don't you realize that I already have? You may not receive the temporary healing that you seek, one that will still end in death and goodbyes. But do you not know that one day you will be raised never to die again, never to lose the ones you love? This is our faith. This is our promise. This is why Christ withered upon the tree of the cross, why he was cast into the sea of death, why he was slaughtered as the Lamb of God. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are and for all that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, that Christ was withered on our behalf. Thank you, Lord, that he has taken upon himself the judgment that we deserve. Thank you, Lord, that because of his work, you offer us freely and graciously life with you. Let us receive it. Let us hold on to it. Let us take joy in it more and more each and every day. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.